Well, thank you, Sue, for your testimony, <clears throat> for encouraging us and reminding us of the power of the gospel of Christ. Praise God and look forward to seeing you grow in the Lord and seeing you uh, partner with us in ministry and God equipping you to be an evangelist and that God use you for His purposes uh, for till His return. Well, I concur with Bob. It was a great and productive elders retreat, a sweet time of fellowship and planning and prayer. But there was a low point in our retreat. Um, never have we come so close to open disunity and division during our retreat. I mean, we came razor thin close to just clear division. Um, Friday afternoon, we had a big lunch and we were driving around in LA and um, stop and go traffic and windy roads, and, you know, my stomach was very queasy, and I lowered the window to get fresh air, and I was getting really close to losing my lunch in Bob's car. And I said to myself, if I lose this big hot tofu lunch <laughs> in Bob's car, there's going to be disunity and division among the elders. God help me. <laughs> and I pray to God, open the window. And by God's grace, it was close, but I kept my lunch, and our unity was preserved <laughs> to the glory of Christ. <laughs> great, great elders retreat. Well, what do, what do we do at elders retreat? Bob shared a lot about things we covered. Um, just one area of, minute, of, of uh, our meeting time that I wanted to share with you, just for for you to know, and for you to know what the elders are involved in as we shepherd the flock here at Cornerstone. Thursday night we arrived and went straight to work from 7.30 to almost 1 a.m. I think we took two five-minute breaks. And the first thing we did was I uh, went through an individual SWAT, strength, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. We had given our wives maybe 26 to 30 questions concerning our qualification as elders. Who knows us better than our wives? So uh, Sophie and Serene, they answered questions like, Is your husband guilty of any offense this past year that would cause a serious reproach to Christ, that would make him blameless, or full of blame? He would not be above reproach. Questions like, Is your husband still pursuing you? Does he render to you honor and love as he should as your, as your husband? Does he demonstrate tenderness to you? Is he an able manager of the family? Is your husband given to any excess? Is there any area in which he lacks self-control? Is he given to highs or lows emotionally? Do you find rendering respect to your husband something you must strain to do? Do others respect your husband? Why or why not? I mean, 26 or 30 questions of this nature going through the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And my wife, you know, she had like a whole book of answers. You know, Sophie's was like, like two pages, but Srin wrote like a whole book. And we, you know, sharing honestly, openly, our, 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 our examples, our, our, our lives, our character before our wives, and share with us each other our strengths. And show it to the what are what are our weaknesses that our wives have pointed out? What are our opportunities and what are our threats? 
and what are decisions that we would make in light of this, and how can, how can we keep each other accountable? So that took about, you know, four hours, right, going to midnight, maybe about an hour or so. And then the next step was SWAT of our elder team, taking a look at our culture of our elder team, Bob and I and our relationship, and even with Marcus, what's our culture like? What are our strengths together as a team? What are our weaknesses, our opportunities and threats, make decisions? And then we went through each flock shepherd. We talked about Gary for like two hours, brother. <laughs> talked about Gary and Francis and Kostura and Huey and, and Marcus and um, um, who am I missing here? Um, um, Dale and... And all the interns, the future interns, like Jason and Joe, and uh, that's, a, that's everyone, right? One by one, just talking about what, who are these men, what are their strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, and how can we shepherd them, and how can we, how can we pray for them, we pray for them. And after that, we did a SWAT of the leadership team. Like these, these uh, flock shepherds, they get along. When they get together, what's the culture? What's the culture of our leadership? What's our, what are the strengths of our leadership team as a, as, as a unit? What are their weaknesses, opportunities, and threats? And then we went through um, the SWOT analysis that we went through last Sunday with all the members, all the leaders present, and went over significant uh, weaknesses and opportunities and threats of our church, and then made these decisions. And that was just not, night one. That was just the first meeting, and. You know, I think Bob and I are a little tired this morning because for the past three days, every waking hour we were thinking, except for a time when we were just, you know, goofing around, telling jokes or having coffee. We were just thinking about the Lord, about Scripture, about theology, how does it apply to our church, thinking about our members, thinking about our ministry, and how we can shepherd and lead and serve to make the Bride of Christ more beautiful and more glorious. At the end, our... Conclusion was, by far the most productive and effective elders retreat thus far. There's a sense where we are, we are gelling, we're coming together as a team, uh, with Marcus joining us, and Huey, and administration, and shepherds, shepherding, flock interns, and the interns, flock shepherds, and interns to come. We are really hitting our stride, like hitting second gear. Our pistons are firing, and we're thankful for that, and we look forward to just Sharing the strengths and our weaknesses and the opportunity to rest next, next week during our second hour and just open our hearts to you and, and that we can run the race of faith together as a church. Well, thank you for your prayers. I know some of you have um, skipped meals, uh, fasted to pray for the elders. Um, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for partnering with us um, by prayer. Well, let's shift gears now this morning and get into the Word. In light of the fact that Christmas is imminent, only uh, maybe 14 days away, 13 days away, Christmas Eve, wanted to do some studies that are related to Christmas, the advent and the coming of Christ. And to that end, we'll start by telling you a story about Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, not DiCaprio, but da Vinci, right? Sisters out there, um, 14th century artist. He has very able um, sculptor and artist, and he. We all know that his uh, one famous picture is his famous painting called The Last Supper. Uh, 
picture of Christ seated on the uh, eve before his crucifixion, uh, surrounded by disciples on both sides. And each disciple, each apostle has a different facial expression and hand movement. And he wanted to capture that moment when he shares with them that one of them will betray him. So he wants to capture that exact instant when Christ utters those words. Well, when he was near completion of his um, of this painting, he showed it to one of his dear friends whom he respected. And his friend was amazed. He had, uh, da Vinci had spent three years to this painting, considered it his crowning work, and the, his friend's praise was unbounded. And he went on and on about the painting, and he pointed out the cup that was in our Lord's hands. And he said, that cup is especially beautiful. Da Vinci at that moment was horrified and shocked. At immediately, he began to paint out that cup. He took a brush and began to erase that cup. Astonished, his friend asked for an explanation. And Da Vinci exclaimed, nothing must distract from the figure of Jesus Christ. Nothing must distract from the figure of Jesus Christ. What a right statement. What a right heart. That is the mindset, is it not, of every Christian? Nothing must distract us from Jesus Christ. In our lives, family, work, worship, ministry, Christ is to be supreme. Christ is preeminent. He is in all and He is all. He is everything. And there must be nothing in our lives that distract us from the glory, the utter beauty of our Lord and Savior. He is to be at the very center. All things are to point to Him. Christian pers- a Christian pursues to have Christ to be preeminent. These are the statements of all eminent believers throughout in the Scriptures. I mean, John the Baptist, John 3.30, he said, I must become less. He must become greater. Philippians 3.7-11, when Paul considered his life, his achievements, his resume, he said, rubbish, scubilon, excrement. He said, I consider all, to forget all things past. They are but rubbish to me compared to knowing the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.7-11. King David, Psalm 72, 17, May His name endure forever. May His name continue as long as the sun. Psalm 151, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name be the glory. That's the Christian's heart. But the truth is that in life there are countless things. Every day, every season, every stage of life, that competes with the glory of Christ and tempts us and calls us to be distracted away from focusing our hearts on our Lord, from the beauty and glory of Christ. And just like the cup in that painting, these things divert us away from the splendor of the Lord. Now strangely, a day devoted to remembering the birth of our Lord, that day is filled with such distractions. Isn't that paradoxical? Isn't that strange? This day and this Christmas season is a time most encumbered and layered with competing glories. 
Whereupon the true significance of Christmas is almost forgotten, utterly forgotten by the world, and it's in increasing measure forgotten by the church, not because we want to forget the Christ of Christmas, but because we're so filled with these distractions. We have so many cups in our lives that Christ is just crowded out. Things like sending out Christmas cards, sending out Christmas cards, giving gifts, receiving gifts, eggnog, Christmas tree, cutting it down, bringing it home, decorating that thing, planning family dinners, visiting both sides of the family, for the wife and mom, cooking and preparing and dessert, and it's about getting time off from work, making resolutions, New Year's resolutions, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And modern day Christmas has become so secularized, become so, in the world's view, profitable, that even Christians have struggled to preserve the true meaning of Christmas. One pastor said, Christmas has become so complex, so chaotic, so confusing with all the stuff that the reality, the simplicity of the birth of Christ has been blended into fantasy and has lost its significance. Is that your struggle, for you? Is that your struggle this day? Because every, every year is a struggle for me. I must fight every Christmas to the right mindset towards this day, towards this season, to remind myself that it's not about me. The world tells me it's about me. To remind myself by the Word of God that it's not about me, it's not about us, but it is about Jesus Christ. Not just Christmas as well, but every day, right? every season, not just on Sundays. Our whole lives is for the purpose of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you with our study in John 1. Encourage you to, to take every opportunity to intentionally, purposefully, comprehensively invest and spend this Christmas to make much of Christ, to make much of Jesus Christ. Stephen Curtis Chapman recently wrote a song called Much of You. My wife and I have been listening to it with just great enjoyment. It's on repeat. It's constantly playing at our home if you come to visit. And let me read to you his lyrics. How can I stand here and watch the sun rise? Follow the mountains where they touch the sky. Ponder the vastness and the depths of the sea and think for a moment that the point of it all was to make much of me. Because I'm just a whisper and you are the thunder. I want to make much of you, Jesus. I want to make much of your love. I want to live today and give you the praise that you alone are so worthy of. I want to make much of your mercy. I want to make much of your cross. I give you my life to take it and let it be used to make much of you. And how can I kneel here and think of the cross, the thorns and the whip and the nails and the spear, the infinite cost to purchase my pardon and bear all my shame, to think I have anything worthy to boast in except for your name. Because I am a sinner and you are the Savior. And this is your love, O God, not to make much of me, but to send your own Son so that we could make much of you for all eternity. I want to make much of you, Jesus. 
I want to make much of your love. I want to live today and give you praise that you alone are so worthy of. I want to make much of your mercy. I want to make much of your cross. I give you my life. Take it and let it be used to make much of you. What a right, God-honoring mindset as we approach Christmas, a day commemorating the birth of our Savior. And as I read the Gospels, no one so exemplifies this mindset of making much of Jesus Christ than our dear brother, John the Baptist. I think you could sum up his life with that phrase. What was John the Baptist about? Who is this guy? What did he live for? What was his purpose? John the Baptist, he lived and died to make much of Jesus Christ. And this guy, he started that even before he was born. In, John, in Luke 1, 39-41, Mary and Elizabeth, they're related and they meet. They're both pregnant. And when Elizabeth meets Mary, Luke 1, um, 41 says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So even as an infant, even as... Uh, a baby in, her, in his mother's womb, when he met baby Jesus, he leaped. because he, he was making much of Jesus Christ. And he was pointing to the Lord. The model for us. His first message was not about himself. His message was all centered on Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 3. What was his message? He said, the kingdom is in rebellion. This is the kingdom of God. And the king is here, He is returning. Prepare yourself for the King. His winnowing fork is, is spreading out against the grain and He will separate the wheat and the chaff. The axe is at the root of the tree and He will cut down every tree that does not produce fruit. Repent. For the Kingdom of God is near. The King is near. The King has come. And in John chapter 1, after months of proclaiming this message on the other side of Jordan in the wilderness, after months and months of baptizing those who repent and preparing themselves for the King, John the Baptist sees him and his eyes are opened and he identifies, he recognizes the King that has come to save God's people. I mean, think about it. He must have wondered all his life. Who is this Messiah? What does He look like? What will I say? When I, when I first see Him as His bridegroom, I, I rejoice. As groomsmen, I rejoice at this, at this wedding, this marriage that is take, to take place. What will I say? How will I identify Him? In John 1, 29, that fateful day finally arrives. And 29-34 contains our dear brother, John the Baptist's testimony of our Lord. We'll just focus on one verse. Verse 29. The baptizer sees him from a distance and he now knows his true identity. With his disciples, the Jewish leaders crowded around him. There are just throngs of people encircling these two men. John sees him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away 
the sins of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What an awesome declaration about our Lord, is it not? I mean, a single statement. What a beautiful sentence. A sentence, a declaration, a statement rich in truth. Just overflowing with just, just the beauty of tr- the beautiful truths about who our Lord is and how He came, how, he, how He's coming. He's coming not as a lion, but as a lamb. And He's a lamb of God. And why has He come? One purpose. To take away my sins. To take away your sins. To take away our burden, the sins of this world. What a wonderful statement. May, may each believer declare this on Christmas Eve. On Christmas Day, may we wake up and not yearn to open our presents or even give presents. Even before we call family members, may we say, Behold, this day commemorates the coming of the Lamb of God who took away my sins. The first word is behold. Second person Singular imperative. It is a command by the, the, the baptizer. Behold Jesus Christ. Look at Christ. Mentally, visually apprehend, apprehend the sheer beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. Delight in Him. Take pleasure in Him. Fix your soul and, and everything within you on the sheer essence of Jesus Christ. Because as Pastor John Flavel has said, the soul is exceedingly ravished when it first looks on the beauty of Christ. And that's the cornerstone of the Gospel. It is Jesus Christ. And we talk to each other about, Jesus, about the Gospel. And we proclaim the Gospel to non-believers. That's our first call. Look at Jesus. Behold Him. Do you have the eyes to see this man, this Lamb of God that has come for us. And then John gives him a unique title given to Jesus. He calls him the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. In that simple phrase, it sums up the love, the sacrifice, the sufferings and the triumphs of the Lord. By that description, it reveals the sacrificial nature and character of Christ's coming. Right, he's coming sitting on a donkey. Right? He's coming as a servant. And He's come as a lamb, not as a lion, not as a victor. He's not coming on a white horse. That will happen in the book of Revelation. In His second coming, He'll come victorious in His glorified form to wage war and, and execute judgment. But the first coming, He comes as the Lamb of God a title rich in significance, an animal that's often referred to in the Old Testament. Let us consider three Old Testament passages. And just looking at these passages will help us understand the significance of our Lord being called the Lamb of God. Turn with me to Exodus 12, 3 through 11. Exodus 12, 3-11. In our family worship with our daughter, we're going through the book of Exodus. And we just finished the last plague and the Israelites have been set free. So, I don't know how much Elizabeth got out of the 
ten plagues uh, given to Egypt, but mom and dad learned a lot <laughs> from Exodus. Um, of the five Jewish feasts, there are five feasts ordained by God to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Passover, Pentecost, Dedication, Purim, and Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles, the major feast in the Jewish calendar, is by far the feast of Passover. Passover commemorates the decisive event in Jewish history. The freedom, the exodus, the exit of the people of Israel from their Egyptian bondage. After 270 years in bondage in Egypt, they're finally set free. Uh, I think a family member of 14 went into Egypt. Now over 2.1 million Israelites are coming out of that nation. It marks the birth of this nation. It's, uh, it's 4th of July and Christmas and New Year's and Thanksgiving all rolled into one. That is the significance of Passover for the Jewish people. As we know that Pharaoh was resistant to Yahweh's directive to let God's people go. God, Pharaoh hardened his heart five times. God humbled his heart five times and gave him ten plagues. And the tenth plague was the angel of death, the death of the firstborn son in each household. Exodus 12.3, each household. Yahweh prepares Israel by telling them each household is to take a lamb for themselves into their home. After five days, remember this, after five days, significant for later on, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, verse 7 of the houses. It is the Lord's Passover. I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord, and the blood shall be a sign for you in the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Hence Passover, and no plague will befall you, destroy you, when I strike the land of Egypt. It was after this plague that Pharaoh finally relented. And God so thus delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt. From that day on, every year, Israel remembered uh, this event of Israel from Egypt. And during the time of Christ, it was a major feast. All adult males within 20 miles radius of Jerusalem were required to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover. We are told that in Luke 41, Joseph and Mary were faithful Jews. They made this pilgrimage. And our, our Lord, as a young, young man, accompanied them in this feast in, in Jerusalem. For those who are not able to go to Jerusalem, they participated their feast in their own homes. And they ended each feast, each meal, by saying, next year in Jerusalem. Next year in that faithful city. Thirty years after our Lord's death, the Roman governor took a census of the number of lambs that were slaughtered on this day alone in Jerusalem. And he counted a quarter of a million lambs were killed on that particular Passover. Historians say that roads ran red with blood as these slaughter, of these slaughtered animals. The ravines and lake beds also ran red with blood. In fact, so many animals were slaughtered that 
the altar, the temple, the Levites to perform the ceremonies were drenched with blood after lamb after lamb was sacrificed. Their garments, their hands, their faces, even their hair were covered with blood. It was a vivid experience to go to Jerusalem. You go away and you would see firsthand an innocent lamb being murdered sacrificially, substitutionally, instead of you for sin. And you cannot forget the sight of so much blood. It's like a butcher shop. Um, biggest butcher shop in the world. Um, a sight that could not be forgotten. Well, not only once a year, but God ordained in Exodus 29, 38-42, that every single day, two lambs were to be sacrificed. In the morning and at night. In the morning and at night, the sins of the people. So long as the temple stood, this daily sacrifice was made until AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. The final passage is Isaiah 53. If you turn there with me, Isaiah 53. Time does not permit us to dwell on this wonderful passage. We have studied it indefinitely in studies past. I want to just turn your attention to a single verse, verse 7. And here it is again. The Lamb. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Isaiah's prophecy pointed to the Messiah coming like a lamb, being led to the slaughter. The Messiah will be meek, mild, and gentle, and he will not fight, going to be slaughtered. He will not resist. This idea of a lamb as a sacrifice was very familiar to John and all the Jews that were present. And by John calling Jesus in John 1.29, the Lamb of God, he's saying that all these Old Testament types, all these figures of the Lamb in the Old Testament, they all point to Jesus Christ. He's saying, Jesus Christ, He is the final Passover Lamb. He is the fulfillment of the Passover Lamb in Egypt. That Passover Lamb signified deliverance from Israel, from Egypt, to Canaan, to the Promised Land. It signified physical bondage, freedom from physical bondage into physical freedom. John the Baptist is saying, our Lord, He is our, He's a Passover Lamb. And He's setting us free not from the physical bondage, oppression of the Roman government, but from spiritual freedom, from the bondage of sin. Remember that five days that was significant? Passover lamb, you bring that lamb into your family, five days before it's to be slaughtered, the lamb is tied to a, to a fence or, or one of the posts in the home, and kids play with it, it enters the house, maybe it becomes part of the family for those five days. At the end of the five days, you slaughter it, well, our Lord entered Jerusalem on Sunday. Entered the city of God on Sunday. Five days later, He was slaughtered. He is the Lamb of God. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Jesus Christ, He is our Passover Lamb. He's been sacrificed. As Jewish people, they had their 
lambs that signified forgiveness of their sins, redemption, freedom for us, Jesus Christ. He is our Passover lamb. The angel of death passes over us because our Lord shed His blood. Secondly, He is a true Lamb to which every morning and evening sacrifice in the temple pointed. Every day, two lambs were sacrificed in the morning and evening. The evening sacrifice, because of the chronology, was the final sacrifice. It was, it was concluded. Our Lord, Luke 23, 44, 46 says, that he died about the 6th hour, 6 p.m. That's the usual time of the evening sacrifice. So in the temple, the priest was killing the evening sacrifice, the evening lamb. At that very time, our Lord Jesus Christ, outside the city gates, crucified on a cross, he died the 6th hour. So that lamb that was killed was pointing to that Christ was being murdered on the cross as our Passover lamb, as our lamb. Finally, He is the Lamb, our Lord, which Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, 7, that who would be brought to slaughter. He is God's Lamb. He is not the Lamb man brought to God. He is the Lamb that God brought to man. Approved by God, appointed by Him, most dear to Him, the most perfect sacrifice which He chose to save His people from death. Just like the Lamb that was slain in the temple and Passover without blemish and defect, Peter says, 1 Peter 2, 23-25, He was without blemish, without defect. He is the answer to Isaac's question in Genesis 22. Remember Isaac and, and Abraham walking to the place of um, Abraham's sacrifice? Isaac asked his father, Father, the fire and wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where is the lamb? John the Baptist said, Here he is. Here is the lamb of God. God has given to us to take away our sins. That final phrase reveals the purpose of Christ coming to the earth. He came to accomplish a unique work. He came to do that which we could never do for ourselves. He came to take away, to remove, to cleanse, to atone for our sins. This phrase reflects the atoning character of our Lord's mission. The word atonement describes this act of God. It is the work of our Lord dealing with the problem of man's sins. It is the work of Christ in bringing sinners in a right relationship with God. The Hebrew word of atone is a concept that Old Testament uh, translators translated with various different words. Atonement, other words that were used were to purge, to cleanse, to, to purify, to wipe away, to take away. That's why Christ came. He, became, he came to clean us. Though our sins are red as crimson, He will make it white as snow to remove it complete. 
That is why He, he has come. He has come to take away the sins of the world. Isaiah 53.4 He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. 1 John 3.5 You know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body. Why? So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Revelation 5, 6-9 What a glorious picture of the Lord. Revelation 5, 6-9 Apostle John said, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who sat in the throne. And when He had taken it, four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, before the Lamb of God. Each one had a harp. They were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song together in unison. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You are worthy because you died to cleanse us from our sins. Just by John's declaration and just by the Lord's mission that he had had come to take away our sins tells us that sin is universal. He didn't come just for the sins of Israel. Everybody else is innocent. He didn't just come for a certain segment of people because everybody else is sinless. He came for the sins of the world. That tells us the universality of sin. 1 Kings 8.46 There is no man who does not sin. Psalm 14.3 There is no one who does good, not even one. Not just sin of commission, but sin of omission. Not only are they full of evil, no one does any good. Guilty both ways. Ecclesiastes 7.20 There is not a righteous man therefore on the earth who does good and never sins. He adds it together. There is no one. Our Lord said in Mark 10.18 No one is good but God alone. Romans 3.23 Paul writes All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Universality of sin. Our Lord's coming. The fact that Christ did not send an emissary, an apostle, or a prophet, but He sent His own Son to shed His own blood, to give His life, tells us that sin is serious. It's not a minor thing. Transgression of God's holy commands, rebellion against His authority, violation of His holy law is not a minor, minor thing. Lord, Him coming Himself tells us the seriousness, the utter seriousness of sin. Habakkuk 1.13 says, God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Isaiah 59.2 tells us that sin separates us from God. 
What separates us from God? It's one thing, that's sin. Sin separates us. In fact, God, Jesus said of Judas, because of his sin, He said, Mark 14, 21, it would have been better for that man if he was never born. Would have been better. Son of perdition. Colossians 1, 21 tells us, before we are saved, men are estranged and hostile to God doing evil deeds. For an unrepentant sinner, there is only a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire which will consume the enemies of God. Hebrews 10.27 Only thing awaiting unrepentant sinners is God's fury. I mean, God's wrath. His, his height of anger is reserved for those whose sins remain. That's the only thing that they could hope for. only thing that, that, that awaits them. Third reason for Christ's coming, what that reveals, it tells us that we're unable to deal with our own sins. He came because we could not help ourselves. He came to help us because we're helpless. He came to assist us because our hands were bound. We were dead in trespass. There was nothing we could do to deal with our own sinfulness. Numbers 32-23, we can't hide sin. We could even hide it before God. Proverbs 29, what's worse, we cannot cleanse our sin of ourselves. Romans 3.20, and no amount of righteous deeds will enable a man to stand before God justified. No amount of righteous deeds. In fact, Sue shared this verse, right? Isaiah 64.6, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags for the sight of God. Because they are a source of pride, of an unregenerate man, there are filthy rags. In the Hebrew, there are menstrual rags. They're utter disgust, they're utter contempt, and, and objects of scorn and disgust. That is how gross our righteous deeds are in the sight of a holy God. If man depends on himself, he, may, he will never be saved. Our Lord coming as a lamb tells us universality of sin the seriousness of sin, and that there is no other way, that we are hopeless, estranged by our sins, that there is no way out, that He is our only hope, and He has come to take away the sins of the world. What a beautiful statement. What a beautiful declaration. And by our Lord's resurrection, we know that He accomplished it. He was successful. His mission was completed. So we celebrate Christmas differently than it was first celebrated by Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the angels and the three wise men. We celebrate differently because we look back and we see the full picture that he was he was he came, he was born, he did his ministry, he died, and the check cleared. God accepted Christ's sacrifice. And not only did He come to take away our sins of the world, future tense, no, our sins have been taken away. See, Christmas, the day of rejoicing and worship, because we rejoice, we experience it as recipients of His mission. We receive this gift of Christ and our sins, the burden of our sins 
have been taken away, gone forever. May I give you three exhortations on how we might erase these cups of, and distract us away from the Lord and rightfully um, celebrate Christmas. First of all, behold Christ. Let's obey the last prophet of the Old Testament, John the Baptist. Let's heed his words and listen to his final command. Behold the Lamb of God. Let's fix our eyes on Christ. Let us refuse to be distracted. Let us fight that fight. You know, we're Protestants, right? You know, we're rebels. We're protesters. Right? We don't take the status quo. We don't conform to this world. We don't walk with the crowd. We go against the crowd. We protest. And what is our protest? Our protest is, it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about all these tangential things about Christmas. It's all about Jesus Christ. We, we want to fight to fix our eyes and see the beauty and the glory and the loveliness of our Lord. We want to erase all the cups that are in our lives. We want to snuff out all the competing lights that compete with the glory of Christ. And we want to fix our eyes on Christ. Second way to celebrate Christmas is to thank Him for taking away our sins. Praise Him. Worship Him. That's the greatest gift. Whatever gift we receive, I mean, it, it does a disservice. It's, it's highly unwarranted, inappropriate to compare any gift we receive on this earth compared to the greatest gift of the forgiveness of our sins. May we thank Christ before we thank one another. Thank Christ. Thank God for the gift of our salvation, gift of our sins, being gone. Wiped away, atoned for, purged, washed away. And finally, let's listen to John the Baptist when he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Prepare yourself for the coming king. The crowd asked, Well, how do we prepare? Okay, Christmas. How do I prepare for Christmas? John answered, Luke 3.11 If you have two tunics, share with, one, share with him who has none. He who has food should do the same. If you are affluent, if you are living in the land of plenty and you have two jackets, why do you need two jackets? Give away one to a man who doesn't have a single jacket. I mean, I think Christmas is the time to unclutter your life, you know, the spiritual disciplines, to simplify our lives. We're just, every Christmas, every birthday, right, every special event, we receive gifts and we buy gifts for ourselves. Christmas, for Christians, is a time for us to say, I have too much. I, I need to prepare for the Lord. I need to simplify, I need to give away and show Christian love. If you have two of anything, Give it away to those who are in need. The task collectors came and said, Teacher, what should we do to prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah? Don't collect any more than you are required to. Stop cheating. Stop lying. Stop coveting. Stop envying. Stop theft. If there's any sin in your, in your life, that is a right response to Christmas. 
to repent of sin and to do what is right. It's not about this emotional, spiritual high, but it's dealing decisively, mortifying any known sin so that Christ, when He comes to our lives, He'll find order, He'll find righteousness. And then verse 14, some soldiers asked Him, what should I do? What should we do? He said, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. And like the last one, be content with your pay. King is coming. He is sovereign. Be content with your pay. Are you content with your pay? You know, almost, no one is content, almost, right? A great majority. We all feel like we should be pay, being paid more. No one is content with our jobs. We're always griping and complaining about our boss, about our co-workers. During Christmas, no, prepare for the king. Be content. Be content the life that God has given you. As the song said, I want to make much of you, Jesus. I want to make much of your love. I want to live today and give you the praise that you alone are so worthy of. I want to make much of your mercy. I want to make much of your cross. I give you my life. Take it and let it be used to make much of you. Father, we do thank You and praise You for the gift of Your Son, Jesus Christ. We say so often that salvation is free, but we know, we know by now, repeat it so often that for You, granting us of our salvation was not free. It cost You, Your own Son, Your only Son, Son You loved. And for our Lord, granting us salvation was not free for Him. He had to lay His life down give his hands, give his life over to the hands of sinners and suffer the reproach and scorn of men and experience the wrath and judgment and condemnation of God on the cross so that our sins might be taken away. Lord, as we approach this season, may our hearts be ready for a fight, to fight this world that tells us it's all about us. May we fight to make much of you to behold the beauty of Christ, to thank you for the greatest gift, and to deal with our lives according to the Word of God so that we might reflect your beauty and glory rightfully, faithfully to this world. God, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for this season. And we thank you for the Word teaching us who you are, why you came, and how we are to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.